Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. Uh, your second World War podcast. And James, uh, this this should be fun. Who, who are we talking to today? Well, we've got a very special guest today. We've got Sam Worthington-Lease. And Sam, I've known for a, for a few years now, and he's a, he's a pilot. He's a former RAF. Well, he's an RAF trainee. Became a, a warbird pilot. He flies Spitfires and Harvards and um, up at Duxford. But has also been the absolute driving force, brainchild, man of most energy, of which you need a lot for such a project, trying to get a hawker typhoon back into the air and not just any old uh, hawker typhoon uh, a very special one rb396 and quite a long way down the line but you know it's a bit a big old slog isn't it it's a it's a task you've given yourself sam you could say that yeah you certainly could say that <laughs> <laughs> but you're getting there we're getting there we, we are yeah and um you know, actually, we thought that the engineering would be the difficult bit. Raising the money is the difficult bit. So it's obviously costing a vast, vast, vast amount of money. And, and we're the sort of fundraisers in the project. And we, we engaged the aircraft restoration company uh, at the back end of 2018, start of 2019, to actually do the rebuild, you know, the professionals. Uh, because we, we probably could have done it ourselves, but you have to then set up your own facility. You'd need your own tooling, mm-hmm. your own staff you, for, for a one-off that would cost a lot more than, than, you know, paying the professionals to do it. Um, and, and they're arguably the best in the business. So, you know, we've just been working away, started small at air shows and, and merchandise like this little coffee mug here and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and building up over the years. And, and yeah, we, we're getting there slowly uh, and it will happen. It's just a case of when. So Sam, how, how, how does one find oneself? Cause we're restoring a Lloyd carrier, which is a more modest proposal. Um, uh, uh, we've got but comes with its challenges comes with Still its challenges challenge, sure. yeah. but 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 nothing you know it's it, nothing like the complexity of the uh, project you've taken how do you find yourself trying to restore a hawk typhoon to airworthiness it costing an arm and a leg is it one of those things if you want to make a million in that kind of business you need five million pounds is it one of those oh, absolutely <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah, it's a saying in aviation, if you want to make a million, start with 10. And, yeah, um, exactly. 
Uh, yeah, so, well, I, I'd just been made redundant from the Air Force, as James said, and uh, I was starting my sort of fledgling career as a flying instructor, having got my commercial licences and done some tailwheel flying and vintage bits and bobs. And uh, I was getting really stuck into researching the, the sort of nuts and bones of my granddad's uh, flying history because I knew he was in the Air Force. I knew he flew the Hurricane and, and the Typhoon. Uh, but I didn't know all that much about it. So I was doing a lot of research and um, I ended up just finding on this this forum, and I'm, I'm not a forum user at all, but I found yeah. a message. That's all right, we won't hold it against you at all. <laughs> no, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so I found a message on there on this forum once, uh, and this was in 2014, uh, from a guy. He'd only ever posted one message on this forum, and the message itself was a year old. But he said, been to the crash site, um, and, and parts have been recovered of this aircraft, this serial number, MN252. And yeah. I thought, hang on a minute, that can't be right, because the research I'd done I discovered that the aircraft my granddad was flying on the day he got shot down was MN two five two. So I thought, well, wow. well, whoa! Uh, um, and and I so I registered on this forum, uh, and my one and only message on a forum in a public forum, I left this guy thinking this is going to go nowhere because it's a year old. There's no responses to it, and I said, look, I'm the grandson of the guy that was flying that aeroplane. Basically, could we have a chat? Here's my email address, phone number for whatever. And then a private UK collector got in touch with me because he'd obviously seen that message. It turns out he was chasing the parts as well because he was just collecting parts from here, there and everywhere. And he, and he said, you know, have you heard from this guy? And I said, no, not yet. You know, who are you? And, and we had a chat. And then uh, this guy with these parts got back in touch with me and he said, oh, look, I've actually just sold them to Kermit Weeks over in the States because he's doing his Tempest projects. But I haven't sent them out yet. And uh, would you like me to hold some small bits back for you and send them over? And I said, absolutely, yes. And they are actually um, that. Um, that one is a cockpit light fitting. You can see where the light bulb goes. Uh, and then this one, uh, a fuse box, and it's got two glass fuses. And I don't know if you can see the fuses are still intact yeah. from the aircraft he was flying on the day he got shot down. So I just thought this that is absolutely amazing. And, and almost certainly he will have touched the light fitting. And certainly this, this is from the, um, the throttle quadrant. So he would have, you know, on takeoff, off you go. And so I got back in touch with this UK collector. I said, look, the, the guy sent me these parts. You know, well, you know, what are you doing? And he told me all the parts he had. He had the rear fuselage from RB396. He was confident of an engine coming, um, all sorts of other bits and bobs here and there, nine and a half thousand drawings that he'd spent sort of 15 years uh, finding. And I sort of fairly naively said, hey, do you think you could make this into a flying aeroplane? Because I was, I was dead set on wanting to fly, you know, warbirds one day. And uh, I said, well, maybe if we built this, maybe I could fly it outside chance. This was nearly 10 years ago now. And he said, well, y yes, but it's going to cost a lot of money. And I said, well, how much? And he'd spoken to restoration companies. Again, this was sort of 10 years ago. And he said, well, I think it's going to cost about £5 million. And I, and I just I said to him, I remember the line, I said, so you're telling me that you have got everything we need to make this aeroplane fly apart from the money? He said, yes. <laughs> so I said, 
well, let's raise five million quid then. And that was the start <laughs> of the project. And, um, That's amazing. We sort of got together and had no idea whatsoever of how we were going to do that. But we just we just went. I set up social media. We did a website, a bit of merchandise, went to air shows, just started getting support. And there's quite a lot out there. And we're building on it, building on it, building on it. Still finding parts here, there and everywhere. We've just taken delivery of a propeller from over in the constant, another engine from the constant they turned up just last week. So we're still kind of out there. Oh, wow. Parts. So you got just two everything. now. Wow. So we've got the really, really good example. Then we've got a, a basically a section, but kind of working example that you can turn and you can see the sleeve valves and everything turning inside. And then we've got this example. And then there's another crash recovered one as well. This one we've just taken delivery of is a crash recovered one, but it will have, even if it's just one useful piece of information, you know, it's another little piece in the puzzle. So, so yeah. And then here we are, that was 2014, 15, that conversation, really. We set up the charity in 2016. Uh, I remember we helped you with your typhoon on the hill. That was 2019, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, good old COVID came along. Uh, and, and screwed everything up for everyone for sort of two years. And, and now we're coming out the other side of it. We're trying to sort of get a bit of momentum behind it again. And the rear fuselage is very, very nearly finished on the Isle of Wight. Um, it's another couple of months' work. Wow. Because we had to pause it, we're now kind of in the queue. So it's going to be restarted again in sort of June, July this summer and finished two, three, four months later. And that will be the first airworthy section of a Hawker Typhoon that is going to fly completed anywhere in the world since World War Two. So, you know, it's quite, quite a big deal. That is it's a massive deal. Amazing. And, we, and, you know, we love the Hawker Typhoon on this, this show. Oh yeah. Um, no, it's, it's fantastic. You, you know, we're, we're big fans and, uh, of course, I mean, just the thought of seeing a Typhoon flying again is, unbelievably exciting. I'm absolutely boggled by this because I mean, this must feel like, uh, uh, you're, you're pushing an enormous rock up the hill, aren't you? In, in terms of fight, fight, because finding five million quid can't be can't can't be easy. And in times of inflation as well, it could suddenly turn into six million quid, couldn't it? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Well, kind it of, was kind five of, million quid ten years ago. It, it's now yeah. a more realistic explanation. The estimation is kind of six plus, maybe seven. Good, good lord, and 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 that's that. That's I mean, because I've been to I've been to um, uh, the place on the Isle of Wight where you know, which is absolutely amazing with their with their jigs for building Spitfire wings and, and for fixing the main spar. Is it when you go there because because they are like Spitfire based? What have they had to do to to get their head round a, a you know basically a brand new airframe for them? What it, has that been a big a big a big adjustment for them, or are they? they, they I mean, they strike me as very sort of capable and. Uh, switched on people anyway but was that a big ask for this rear fuselage section not really it's a very similar manufacture um, technique to a spitfire you've got frames stringers and the skin uh and, and that's it pretty much the, the, the front section there are some big kind of uh, bolts fixings brackets if you like that, that attach the front of the rear fuselage to the back of the cockpit they just kind of bolt together so those that those had to be um reverse engineered we had a full set of original ones but only one of them could be made airworthy so we needed another three to be made and, and it's you know it's not quite as easy as just giving it to a machine shop and say here you go make one of them because you have to make a drawing from the part then they have to set up the tooling to make that part and then it has to be finished in the same way and then the material and this and that and the other um, and they cost 15 grand for these three fixings 
Um, and loads of people said, oh, you've had your pants pulled down, you've had your pants pulled down, I could have made that in my shed for 20 quid. I said, you probably could. I actually probably could have made that in my garage for maybe a bit more than that. But does it come with all the paperwork that it needs to? Is it a one-off aircraft restoration you know from a type that hasn't flown for nearly 80 years no it's not and that's why these things cost so much money but that rear section that rear fuselage is is actually quite similar you know, to um to a spitfire in the way it's um uh, the way it's built so they've not had to do that much head scratching well that's really that, that's it that's interesting i suppose the complicated bit of the spitfire is the wing anyway because it's it's basically a wooden aircraft made of aluminium isn't it so so, so yeah so is, is the typhoon wing a bit better a bit easier the typhoon wing will be reasonably straightforward to build it's kind of got this big sort of these girder spars you know sort of triangulated pieces in like that it's a very thick wing um it's just like a hurricane wing but even bigger the, 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 the <laughs> difficult bit is not difficult but the bit that needs a little bit of head scratching the the tubes that the for, so the cockpit sort of forward is a tubular frame structure and obviously the tubes are round but then when they all join together they're squared and there's right. there's only two machines in the country that can do that, that, that still survive that can do that tube squaring you've got these bolts that, that, that see that you, the big tubes that go together and, and they sort of square off like that and then over that you have a, like a plate and then they just all bolt together and, and that's really quite straightforward it's like a big meccano kit um but so that needs a, just a little bit of head scratching but also the material you can't get the grade of steel anymore and i can't remember which one it is it's either t45 or t40 you can get the grade either side but you can't get that grade in the middle so then they have to and, and i'm not an expert in this but a grade say t50 steel some of it in that batch will be t45 and some of it will actually be t like 55 and so they've got to then individually assess each bit and pick the bits out that are the right grade or oh my god do the paperwork and whoever do, knew do the maths and do the maths because if you use say if, if it's designed on a a certain grade that is going to you know flex an amount if you put a, a stiffer one in that doesn't flex as much that's going to pass on that that issue of, of it not flexing to somewhere else that the, and the airframe is not designed to do that so everything's got to flex the right amount otherwise you, you just pass a problem down the line so there's a fair amount of head scratching to do for that and and the engine is obviously an obvious one but what we should do though is, is for those who don't know what the typhoon is we, sh- we should talk a little bit about about its history and and how it came to be and what it looks like so so it, the, the typhoon was was designed originally as a sort of replacement for the hurricane which was obviously you know one of the fighter planes that was built signed and built before the second world war was one of the kind of heroes of the battle of britain etc but but was sort of effectively obsolescent already by 1940 you know just aviation is just changing so fast um and hawker are a, a brilliant company and and huge track record with the raf and they're very quickly you know, developing this this sort of bigger um fighter aircraft which is an absolute brute and it has um uh a napier saber engine which is incredibly but like 2,000 horsepower, something like that, isn't it, Sam? Plus, yeah. Yeah, 2,200 2, was the stated figure. Yeah, big unit. Okay, so if you think the first Merlin was sort of, you know, 1,100 and, you know, the, the Merlin 10 is, uh, um, is well, what was it? About, about, about 1,500 horsepower, wasn't it? And then they go, you know, the Griffins are what? 1700 1800 something like that but but anyway whatever they are but you know you know this is this is it's, a, it's an absolute bruiser i mean some people say it's an ugly aircraft i don't think it is I, th- I think it looks absolutely magnificent it's got this huge engine cowling but it has what it has underneath it and which gives it it's kind of you know 
pretty special look is this huge air intake, which is like a sort of, it sort of looks like one of those sharks that sort of opens its jaws and just sort of takes in plankton. So it's got this huge, great sort of bulbous air intake underneath it. And I, I just think everything about the Typhoon just looks magnificent. It's got a bubble canopy. Uh, we'll not start off with, but it, but it then develops one. Um, it's incredibly fast, kind of, you know, for over 400 miles an hour. Um, the problems with it in development is it actually it's it, it's it's reasonably hurried and uh, its development and and got into the air reasonably quickly and problems emerge you know wings sort of not lasting and 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 the engine problems and all the rest of it but they do sort that out in in pretty quick order but out of the typhoon comes the tempest which is a kind of sort of generation on and it's got much more sort of elliptical wings rather than a kind of larger hurricane wing and the elliptical wings are obviously the those lovely beautiful curved wings that you have on the uh, on the spitfire so the tempest has a very kind of similar look and also the the p47 thunderbolt they still have that that very sort of lovely wide shallow curved wing so it's not just the spitfire that has that the tempest cu- turns into a you know pretty much a thoroughbred fighter i think that's a fair thing to say whereas the typhoon obviously has lots of it is it is a it starts off as a replacement to the hurricane but then it gets perfected into the type into the tempest as a fighter plane and so well hang on a minute we've got all these typhoons let's use them for something else and so they use them as ground attack air uh, um, aircraft primarily these are the ones that fire rockets they have the eight 60 pound warhead rockets under the wings these are the ones that are shooting up planes and trains you know before and during the normandy campaign and throughout northwest europe these are the ones that are going into the Falaise gap and shooting up the you know the the the, the german sort of huge great german tota bunker you know tota tail columns of 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 men and transport desperately trying to get out of the Falaise gap at the end of the normandy campaign this very narrow kind of route out of this encirclement um they're also the the, the aircraft that is responsible for destroying you know 92 percent of germany's radar chain along the atlantic wall and the run-up to d-day so incredibly effective incredibly tough but it's fair to say losses of pilots in these units is really high because you're operating at low low altitudes and if anything goes wrong you get hit by ground flak or whatever you haven't got much room in the sky in which to maneuver before you get out and bail out so that's why it's an incredibly dangerous business um to be in being a typhoon pilot but a totally awesome aircraft i mean just just amazing fast you know really fast rugged powerful and amazing gun platform combination of cannons machine guns does it have machine guns i can't remember machine guns but cannons certainly and and also rockets you know it's 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 an amazing aircraft yeah like you say a slightly sort of checkered entrance into service but then once it found that niche it dominated it it, it was the only dedicated ground attack aircraft they pioneered techniques that are still in use today so now you have a forward air controller who'll be with this with the forward troops radioing in a strike they'll be laser designated or gps designated nowadays you know in the in the Eurofighter typhoon uh, doing that sort of thing that was pioneered in in the normandy campaign they had an embedded RAF, um sometimes pilot but with the frontline troops and they would smoke mark a target or they would call out a grid on the map and the pilots all had a, the same gridded map and they would say it's, you know, grid G6. I don't know exactly the terminology they use. And the guys would go, right, you two, and down they go. 
does it does it need another go yeah okay next two down you go okay right you've neutralized that one right now grid e7 off you go and and down they went so that kind of cab rank and close the air support but it, it sort of found that niche by accident um and as you said it 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 had the problems at the start. It had a few problems with the engine reliability. They got fixed very, very quickly. Um, it had issues with the tails detaching. That got fixed actually very, very quickly. Um, tragic for the people that, that, that suffered it, but it, it was fixed very, very quickly. It was narrowed down to flutter in the elevators. The tail was then redesigned, never had another failure of that sort. And then they had a few issues with carbon monoxide poisoning um, from the exhaust um, outlet and where you had the early canopy design of a car door which is as the name suggests actual car doors on the side uh, you you had cracks effectively you had this, this, uh, you know a, a joint in the cockpit and and so these fumes were coming in and, and gassing some of the guys so they were just on oxygen from start to finish engine start to engine shut down they had oxygen solved the problem um but it it, it wasn't particularly effective as a high-altitude fighter. That's where the thick wing let it down. So above sort of 15,000 feet, it, it really struggled with performance. But below that, and what a lot of people don't really realise, it was a super effective fighter. It, it was faster than the 109 and the 190. It could outturn both of them, you know, if it wasn't fully armed with rockets and everything. It, so, you know, if it was an equal fight, it could more than hold its own. Um, and I actually went... Um, for this event we're doing in, in April, the showcase. The uh, the Baldwin family have very kindly um, loaned me some of their personal artefacts. So Johnny Baldwin was the highest scoring typhoon ace of the war. He exclusively flew the typhoon for the duration of the war. And he shot down 15 and a half enemy aircraft. He shot down three 109s in one day, in one sortie, in one combat. So the typhoon was a really good fighter when it could play on its terms. Um, so, so, so it did that very well. And what a lot of people also don't realise is it first flew the prototype Typhoon because you had the Tornado and the Typhoon and the only difference was the engine. The Rolls-Royce Vulture, I think, and then the Napier Sabre, that was the, the Typhoon. And uh, it first flew on the 28th of February, 1940. So if you think the Battle of France hadn't really got going, they certainly hadn't evacuated from Dunkirk and had all of that. The Battle of Britain was just a twinkle in Hitler's eye, you know. And, uh, and then this thing came along, you know, and you had sort of Mark One, maybe Mark Two, Spitfires and Hurricanes. But as you said, the Merlins were doing 990-odd horsepower, give or take. Top speed, 300-ish in level flight. And then this typhoon comes along in February 1940, nearly 2,500 horsepower, 100 miles an hour faster, and it's just an absolute weapon. And that technological leap from those early Spitfires to that Typhoon at the same time, it just did things that the, the guys really weren't aware of. So they started encountering, you know, compressibility effects at the, the transonic range when you're getting towards the speed of sound. Explain what transonic pressure effects are. What, what, what's that if, for those that don't know? Yeah. So when you, you know, when you're approaching the speed of sound, if you, if you imagine a series of vertical lines, right and that, yep. that's the sort of shockwaves as an aircraft is penetrating through them it, it kind of bends them like that as you're getting close to the speed of sound they start sort of stacking up um and then you are kind of going faster than the sound around you and those sound waves right. and it just does funny things to the airplane now right. if you're flying at two three four hundred miles an hour you're not getting anywhere near it but where the air then goes over a wing accelerates so the airplane might be flying at 500 but that wing the air over the wing 
might technically be moving at something like 550. So then if you're right. flying at 550, the air over that wing might be going nearer 600. Now, the speed of sound is about 660 miles an hour. Yeah. So you get in, and that, that air is getting really, really bunched up. It does funny things aerodynamically uh, to the aeroplane. And this is what that aircraft was actually starting to experience. And, and the guys that designed it had never really come across that. These things were just fiction at that point. We hadn't broken the speed of sound. We didn't till officially till long after the war. Um, so it wow. was starting to encounter these. It was so fast. And the reason it actually survived as an aircraft type is because it, you, you kind of 1941, 42, the Fokker Wolf 190 comes on the scene and it outclassed the Spitfire 5s, which we had at the time, by a mile. They were completely obsolete against it. But the Typhoon could not only catch it, but outturn it and, and not only catch it, but catch it up and overtake it. So the 190s were coming in low level doing these sort of tip and run raids, you know, dropping a bomb on a seaside town and, and scooting. The typhoons could, could catch them, catch them up, often shoot them down, uh, or certainly give them a good good going over. And so they were kept in service pretty much for that reason. And then the, the guys that were flying that, a few squadron leaders like um, Beamont and others were, were, were doing this. And they said, well, hang on, this aeroplane is supremely effective at low level and they asked permission sometimes didn't but said hey can we just go over to the continent and do a bit of low level see what we can find see how she handles and they sort of said yeah okay off you go and and off they went and they were you know smashing up trains and everything uh, strafing airfields as you said and then they were coming back and these reports and the success of that aircraft started to sort of become known as a low level you know attack aircraft and then they the air ministry started to say, okay, well, let's put some bombs on it. Okay, let's try it with rockets. And it just morphed into this supremely effective ground attack aeroplane. And it, I say it just dominated the field uh, for the duration of the war. And a lot of people have said that the Battle of Normandy, you know, D-Day would have been very different. The, the subsequent Battle of Normandy would have been very different if we didn't have that as an established role. If we were just thinking, oh, we need someone to go and shoot those tanks, well, what are we going to use? Oh, I don't know, a Spitfire. It's just not so good for it because it's so well built. You know, it's bloody great big iron Victorian bridges you see. It's like one of those with wings. And it can take a huge <laughs> amount of damage, a huge amount of damage. Um, and there's, there's pictures you know, on the internet all over the place. I think there's a few on our website of these wings with great big holes in that the other aircraft would have struggled to get home. And it, it just took the punishment, often got the guys home, often didn't. You know, it's not really the aircraft, aircraft's fault because, as you said, they were flying against all this flak. And the term light flak, it makes it sound like it's just a you know, light drizzle. It's not. It's like going outside in the rain and trying not to get wet. Yeah, this is – you are going to get hit. Um, our aircraft, just to put it in perspective, so – it, it, it flew with its squadron in January 45 to the 1st of April, so four months. We know that it did at 36 combat sorties. We've seen pilots' logbooks. It probably did more. But in four months, it got hit by flak 18 times, 18 separate occasions that warranted repair, that warranted repairs. You know, so that, it's just phenomenal. Wow. Well, I, it's, 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 it's an absolutely incredible aircraft. I, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely, it's just awesome. 
I've always often I've got a, I've actually got a radio controlled model one hanging from my ceiling directly above me now. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, I glance up at it and think to myself, "You are magnificent." <laughs> we need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. It seems like the, the next obvious question to ask. I mean, it'll be you taking the controls, Sam. I would like to think that one day, yes, I'll get the chance to fly it. Uh, I, I do want to make it very clear this is not my aeroplane, and I'd stake no claim to it, it being my aeroplane. I, I run the charity, I'm pushing it forward, but you know, I'm not going to be saying, right, I built this, I'm going flying in it. Um, I, I do fly warbirds, as you said, James. I fly some of the things up at Duxford. But and under their guidance, if the time comes when this aeroplane is flying and they say, Sam, you know what? You are you know, not just competent, but perfectly competent, safe pair of hands. You are, at this moment in time, the best person to take that flying. Then I would be delighted. Um, it will do an initial period of test flying that almost certainly won't be me because I'm, I'm not one of those pilots. Um, but, but then, yeah, I would absolutely love to fly it um a, a long-term uh, goal of mine and the, the team on the charity is that the last flight that my grandfather did uh, was out of rf west Hampton, which is now goodwood and uh, i found that out whilst i was an instructor there on the harvard um and the a long-term goal would be to obviously we're incorporating these parts uh, of, of his aircraft into the rebuild of rb396 so they will fly again for me to fly it from goodwood on the anniversary date of uh, of his last flight which was the 21st yeah. of May, a couple of weeks before d-day and potentially wearing um you know a temporary paint scheme of the aircraft that he was flying on that day which would be like a wow. real full circle grandson flying aeroplane with his Gosh. grandfather not not his grandfather's bits, but bits of his grandfather's aeroplane 
on it. You know, um, it's quite a, a nice story. So, Sam, where 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 are you at? What 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 have you got to? What have you got to do after the last couple of years of, of COVID? Where oh, I say COVID, you know, COVID, and um, and then the Ukraine, um, and now the sort of cost of living crisis. You know, our normal stream of income has, has dried up quite considerably for totally understandable reasons. Um, and I'm uh, planning this, uh, it's a showcase event at the 1st of April, um, um, on the 1st of April at Duxford Aircraft Restoration Company, obviously the guys that are doing the rebuild. And uh, the idea being is to invite a list, uh, a, a sort of audience of people, small audience of people that we feel have got the means and or the interest to back the project in a, in a, in a large way, you know, to really move it on. Um, you know, these are, I mean, there's a Lord, there's a couple of sirs, there's the, these people are all kind of business owners or higher net worth individuals or just sort of successful people in life that, you know, just super motivated because what it, it doesn't necessarily need someone who's going to say, here's 5 million quid, 6 million quid, although that would be lovely, you know, a hundred people contributing a reasonable amount of money, but not life changing money would still get this thing done a thousand people contributing a thousand pounds a year that's a million pounds a year you know and a thousand pounds a year is less than a hundred quid a month there's a lot of people that could probably afford that um to see this thing flying so it's about trying to find those people um and and that's what this event in april is for and we we may find some or all or none of the money but um, we're putting a lot of effort into it so we've got a really good invite list at the moment and then hopefully off the back of that, we can kickstart the rebuild. Let's so say the rear fuselage is nearly finished. We've actually got the money to do that. We're just in the waiting list queue to for, for that little bit to start again. That should be finished by the end of the year. Um, next section is the cockpit. So all that tubular frame uh, section I spoke about earlier. Um, that's with uh, Arco at the moment. Um, they've actually started taking it to bits and analysing the, the, the sections, cleaning them up doing that uh, material analysis, things like that, working through the drawings, matching the parts to the drawings and just just kind of getting their head around it. The thing with engineers, it's really interesting. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of metal bashing, that's fine, but there's a lot of just standing around and going, hmm, how does that work? <laughs> For hours and hours and hours on end. And that is really valuable time and it's absolutely fascinating to watch. They're just standing there and going, well, maybe it's like that. Oh, no, maybe it's like that. Maybe it's like that. Oh yeah, I think it might be that. Oh, turn that around. That's yeah, incredible, that's- though, isn't it? That you've got you've got to literally just stand there and work it out. I mean, I mean, I'm always amazed when I see Marcus um, at work on the Lloyd, and his brain just works in a completely different way to mine. I mean, he he just looks at stuff and he can just work it out. He can just work it out. I mean, yesterday I was trying to get my Bedford up and running. It was really damp in the engine. I couldn't do it. So I was trying to dry out the the distributor and things like that and the rocker arm and stuff. And he was going, well, what you want to do is this, 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 this. I started thinking, okay, I just really don't know what you're talking about. And 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 it's, it's, it's a different language. It's a different way of thinking, isn't it? it? And it's incredible how these people just have this innate understanding of how machinery works. It's, it's fascinating to go and be a part of and also quite humbling. You know, I fly the aeroplanes. I personally think that's the easy the easy bit. Uh, they look <laughs> yeah. at me and go, well, oh, I don't want to go anywhere near that. But I think that's the easy bit. And I look at what they're doing and I think, oh, goodness, hats off to you guys. You know, I, I have a very basic grasp of it, of course, and I think most people probably do. But when they start really going for it and they're talking to each other, it's kind of like um, a different language. 
And, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it, no, it's, I'm, it's, I'm, it's I'm fascinating. But but yeah, so the cockpit is the next section, and it, and it depends on funds really. You know, it's it's um, it's a fantastic amount of money, but also achievable with enough people, you know, wanting to support at that level. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, what it what it ultimately needs, and, and brace yourselves, is um, a hundred thousand pounds a month for the next five years. On God. Average. Now that's going to be slightly lower at the start and ramp up towards the end, but but the average is is about that, and that's six million quid over five years. Wow! And that's a lot of money. Now, if that can flow, or you know, or, or, or we know we're going to get that, you know, we know sometime, you know, next year someone's going to do this or that or the other. Then, then it doesn't have to be rear fuselage, then cockpit, then tail, yep. then yep. one wing, then the other. Way. The, the, almost all of it can be done at the same time, um, and but even still, it's probably going to be four years realistically. Eye watering. What did a typhoon cost back in the day? I oh God, I, I don't know. Um, certainly not the, the same <laughs> equivalent amount. It can't, it can't have been. But having said that, you know, a Eurofighter Typhoon today, you don't get much change out of 100 million per airframe. Um, and they're actually breaking up airframes to, to, to feed the others. You know, they're, they're bastardizing them for spares now. And, um, and, you know, they're basically 100 million quid a piece unit cost now. So, so Typhoon's an absolute snip at that. Exactly. You know, you you get a squadron of these, you get them built, um, they they could still do some damage in the Ukraine. You know, it would still work. You know, you think. Yeah, no, they absolutely would, wouldn't they? Maybe that's the way forward. It's a much cheaper Um, option. That's what we should be doing going back to piston engine fighters. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and. and, but, but it is an eye-watering amount of money. Certainly, certainly for me, you know, that is. I think of a hundred thousand pounds a year, a year. I think, my goodness, if I could earn that one day, I've made it. You know, it's rock star wages to me. And there are aircraft that do that job nowadays. You look at things like there's the Super Tucano, which is yeah, very similar sort of performance, yeah. three four hundred miles an hour, loads of bombs and rockets. It's a if I mean it's a jet, but it's a turbine, so it, you know it's a propeller. It's got a propeller on the front, and and it's doing that low level loitering ground attack role, um, and it's doing it very well. So it, it, it would still do a lot of damage in the right hands. Well, thank thank you so much for for talking to us. I I, I mean I can't wait to hear the news that it, that she'll be flying again, and that you know you'll be taking to the skies in your grandfather's aircraft so to speak it's absolutely brilliant sam what an amazing product project yeah amazing absolutely amazing and and i so hope it happens for you i really do because i I just it would just be magic to see a typhoon again really really would and you know i do i just always remember talking to roland beamont b beamont you know he's obviously one of the one of the greats of second world war and beyond you know I think he joined the rf in 1937 flew hurricanes in france in 1940 then in the battle of britain was one of the key test pilots of the typhoon then typhoon wing commander etc etc um and and obviously ended his career with the tsr2 in in the 1960s but um i remember him saying to me and this was shortly before he passed away he was saying god you know why didn't the air ministry at the time just box up three or four of everything he just (laughs) yeah quite right well, no, that's a common question that people say, and you know, why didn't they do that? And I just think at the end of the war, there was no appetite for it. It ravaged. Europe. No, I know there wasn't. Just I know there wasn't. Forget but... about it. But also, I think it was a slight oversight, perhaps, that every single one of them was scrapped because, and 
you know, you mentioned the Tempest earlier, the, the Tempest 5. It was originally called the Typhoon Mark II because it just effectively had a redesigned wing. Um, the late model Typhoons had the Tempest tail without the, the sort of fillet that just curves the, um, curves the rudder. So it basically just had this new wing. And um, so they said, well, we call it the Typhoon Mark II because it kind of was. Um, but it, it, because it had those early issues, you know, with the engine, the tails falling off, the, the carbon monoxide poison, they said, well, look, there's a few confidence issues with the aeroplane, so we'll call it something different. This is a new aeroplane, hasn't got any of those old problems. So rather than a Mark II, it became the Tempest. Um, but because they had the Tempest, which was the Mark II, they didn't need the Mark Ones really. So they, they got rid of them and they were starting to get rid of them before the end of the war had even finished. And um, it's, it's a shame, but it, it, you saw it throughout, you know, when you had the Spitfire Mark V, you didn't need the Mark 1s. So you either upgraded the Mark 1s to Mark V or you got rid of the Mark 1s. And then when the Mark 9 came along, you didn't need the 5s and then, you know, and, and so on. So it was understandable, but and it's only by accident that one still survives in the RF Museum because that was loaned to America and then they pranged it, for, uh, left it in a hangar. We forgot they had it. They forgot they had it. And someone discovered it in the 60s and said, hey, can we have that uh, typhoon back? And they said, no, it's a hurricane. It's not. It's a typhoon. Can we have it back? Oh, well, okay. Well, give us a hurricane and you can have it back. And then they did that swap and now that's why MN235 survives purely by accident. Um, and there, there are bits around all over the place, but there are very, well, there aren't any complete airframes that saw combat. Um, and this one that we're rebuilding, again, it's not a complete airframe, but we have a very, very large section of RB396 in the eyes of the CAA that makes it that aircraft. So it's, it's you know, it's one of the only major surviving sections of a combat veteran typhoon anywhere in the world. So, it's really important, really significant. You know, a group of volunteers are all kind of unpaid, um, do it in our spare time. You know, I'm on a day off from work today. I've got to go to work tomorrow. Um, between us so far, we have raised, and this is a revenue figure, it's not profit, but it's a revenue of over 1.1 million. And, uh, you know, as a, a group of guys and girls just doing it in our spare time, having a go, it, it's, you know, we're getting there. So, decent decent amount of words, that. that we're going to do it. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've got every confidence that we're going to do it. It's just a case of time and money and keep plugging away at it. Um, but it's, yeah. it's a story that needs to be told. You know, you mentioned earlier that the, the, the typhoon pilots that got killed, uh, the research, the figure that we have is 666. It's 56% of all of them that flew. Squadrons often had a 100% turnover rate over the course of a few months. You know, the, the squadron would change from 24 guys and a few months later it would be 24 that's incredible. They've been killed, wounded, taken prisoner, posted off to, to for rest. You know, it's just phenomenal. I was just reading up actually before this. You know, there's a couple of big battles. There was one in Mortain in France. It was it was a one day job, mm -hmm. but they uh, basically uh, a, a couple of squadrons of typhoons stopped a whole Panzer division. That was one day, but ten days later, the fillets proper fillets gap. You know started that was 10 days later yeah and that was just full-on four five six trips a day just get yep. somebody getting shot down every time well, who hasn't made it back this time oh bob's not here and then a new pilot would come in and, and he'd get shot down on the next trip you know it's just the attrition rate was phenomenal
Yeah, and these guys deserve yeah. a memorial, really. That's why we're doing what we're doing, you know, to remember those guys and girls. I mean, they they held up the Mortain offensive with typhoons, didn't they? I mean, that's the that's that's the thing. Is that that's where there's a critical and decisive moment that the typhoon fights in Normandy, and that's it, isn't it? Absolutely proved the value of that role because if there was not an aircraft there capable of doing that much damage, and it's not yeah. to say that of the three hundred or so tanks and armored vehicles that they, every single one was hit by a sixty pound rocket, probably like 10% of them were hit, if that. But all it takes on an armoured convoy on the road, if you hit the one at the front or you blow up the road or the bridge and the one at the back, it's just killing fields in the middle and that, that it's just carnage. And they very that quickly became a tactic, get the one at the front, the one at the back, and then take your time in the middle. Um, and it wasn't necessarily that the tanks were being hit and destroyed, but if a tank hasn't got its crew in it fighting and they're hiding in a ditch that tank's as good as destroyed for the time that the crew is in the ditch, you know. It's a, it's a bit like the 79th Armoured Division of the Tactical Air Forces. You know, it, it's it's one of the ones that everyone knows they were there at D-Day. Everyone knows that they were kind of, you know, firing rockets at Fallows Gap and stuff. But actually, the Typhoon's just there the whole time, you know, from the time it sort of comes into kind of proper frontline service right through to the end of the war. There it is. Um, and... You're absolutely right. You know, it does need to be better, better, better recognised, and and the sacrifice of those who flew it needs to be better recognised. So, you know, I'm massive hats off, Sam. I really, I think it's such a brilliant project, and I just so hope you you're able to come. Yeah, and see yeah, it through. absolutely. You absolutely. just need some fat cats who, who, who think this is a, share your passion for the la- legacy project, and you'll be away. A kind of strength in numbers type project. Yeah, we probably will have one or two big investors that come along and push it over the line, but it wouldn't have got to the position of being able to be pushed over the line if it hadn't started, you know, and it got started by people buying T-shirts, people putting in five quid a month, people occasionally giving us a thousand pounds, you know, what people would class as a smaller donations, but lots of them. And that that's what got it going and got it onto the platform where it is now, it can now be presented in front of those people that might be able to push it over the line. But it's a kind of joint venture. And that's really important. We've got a lot of families of Typhoon veterans that are sort of invested in it, uh, following it and supporting it from, you know, one level to another, from 10 quid uh, to a few thousand or more, doing our best to reach out to any surviving Typhoon veterans. At the moment, we know of pilots, this is. There's a few ground crew out there as well, and we, we want to hear from everyone. So that's an important thing. I'd say, you know, if your audience know of anyone that had anything to do with a Typhoon in terms of designing it, building it, delivering it, ground crew or flying it, you know, please do get in touch because we want to bring those guys and girls on the journey. We want to let them know that it's happening because it must be a pretty... Not disappointing, but a bit, I don't know, I don't really know what the word is, but to have, have done that, such a significant thing in your life, to be swept under the carpet and everyone just goes Spitfire, 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 Battle of Britain, Spitfire, Spitfire. You know, that's great. That's a really important period in our history, but this is also important. A bit like the guys, the Bomber Command guys, you know, they fought tooth and nail for their own memorial. And, they've, and I'm so glad that they got it when there were still a few of them around to know that finally their effort had been acknowledged. Uh, and this is kind of a similar thing. You know, we want to reach out to these guys and say, look, I'm really sorry. It's probably not going to fly before you um, go on your final flight, but we're doing it and we're doing it because of you guys. And at the moment, we know of there's four. Um, I found two more recently uh, that I'm in the process of arranging to go and meet or, or, or talk to at least. And on this do on the 1st of April, we've got Bernard Gardner coming over. And I think, James, you remember we had Bernard at Chalk Valley. Um on the stage and he's a fantastic guy he's a hundred he's going to be a hundred and one 
I think it's the, either the 5th or the 6th of April. And this do of ours is on the 1st, and it's a surprise, so don't tell anyone. But he's going to go flying on the um, in the hurricane. Uh, so, you know, and it'll be a few days short of his 101st birthday. But it's really important to remember those guys. Well, thanks so much, Sam. Uh, and good luck with Thank the project. You. It's an amazing thing you've taken on. Absolutely incredible. Thank you very much. Thank and you. I expect when thanks you come out me. the other end, you'll say never again. I mean, it sounds like... <laughs> quite possibly quite possibly we shall see. Yeah. <laughs> brilliant well thanks for talking to us thanks everyone for listening see you again very soon cheerio cheers Simon. Thanks cheers everyone bye. bye thank you I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.